I'm Erica, and so Steve. Last week, uh, we started off by talking. We we talk, we spent the episode talking about Ruth mm-hmm. and, and the book of Ruth and the character of Ruth and, and everything that goes on with her story. And as you and I have been talking about where this where this podcast needs to go next, we decided that Ruth is a really good starting point to do a series, a whole series on women from Scripture. Okay, yeah. Um, but so often when we hear about the women from Scripture. Uh, whether it be in church or in Bible studies, it's usually because of their children, like who they bore eventually becomes sure, the focus sure. of, of these women. But So we're going to do a little twist on that. Uh-huh. What, what I hope is even more faithful to what the scriptures have to say. Yes. Because that whole idea of uh, these women are important because they had these important babies is an, uh, a lens that later Christians or church folk brought, and this is not the way the Bible wants to remember no. them, as they're only important because they had this baby or, that, or they were meek and mild. But <clears throat> there are women who are leaders in the, in the people of God, Old mm-hmm. Testament, New Testament alike, and that... They have things to teach everybody. Yeah, these women that we're going to be looking at over the next few episodes, it, we're not just looking at them because of who their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren end up being. We're not just looking at them because they're good examples for women, mm-hmm. um, which they are, but we're looking at them because these women are good examples for all of humankind. Right. As leaders, as heroines, as um, faithful uh, women of scripture, and this is truly what I believe as as a female minister, and I know you believe, Steve, as one of my colleagues, that what scripture is saying about women is that women are just as important as men. Right. And right. we can learn from them just as much as we can learn from men. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an important piece. I'm glad you said it that way, that, that there are things <clears throat> we remember and can learn from their lives because they are human beings who show us in different ways courage and love and faithfulness and not, oh, there's a, this is the women's way to be courageous and there's the men's way to be courageous mm-hmm. or something like that and painting them in pastel shades of pink and blue or something like that. Yeah. But this is about humanity, the people who give us a glimpse of what it's like to be caught up in the way of God. So our next woman that we're going to look at, like Ruth, has her own book. Yeah. It's the book of Esther. So, Steve, do you want to give us some kind of background about the story, get us started um, where this conversation is going to take us. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so um, we uh, just help people navigate because Esther is not only one of the lesser known or lesser studied stories, at least among a lot of Christians. Um, it's it's short, it's um, weird in a number of ways, and so if you're looking for it, you'll find it tucked inside your Old Testament right after Nehemiah. Uh, and it's historically set in one of those parts uh, of the Bible story that we often don't get around to, to, mm-hmm. be, to be truthful. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid in like um, high school and junior high history class like the recurring joke was we never got further than world war ii um because <laughs> yeah. we ran out of school year and so often that's how bible stories and bible studies go as well you know we're we're decent at genesis exodus all those stories we maybe even make it to the kings and then we're kind of fuzzy we've heard the word exile once or twice and then like we sort of forget there's more to be mm-hmm. told and the short version of that is after the um, kingdom splits into the north and south. The north is conquered, goes into exile under the Assyrians, and never comes back. The southern kingdom, Judah, goes into exile under Babylon. Babylon eventually gets taken over by Medes and Persians. Um, and during that time, there is this group of people who have returned and retained the identity of being 
uh, descendants of the people of Judah. They're beginning to be called Judeans or Jews is sort of when this emerges, identity emerges. Um, and it's no longer bounded by a single nation state mm-hmm. with, with uh, geographic borders, but it sort of becomes a, a people and ethnicity. And under the time when the Persians are the empire of the day, who not only control the land, which had formerly been Israel and Judah, but also have scattered um, people who are Jewish people or Judean people who are now scattered throughout their territory, as well as some localized there in in Judea and around Jerusalem as well. In that time period, so we're talking like in the like I don't know, 400s, 500s BC, like to be rough about it. Um, and the the story of the book of the, the the book of Esther, which tells the story of Esther, is set in that time mm-hmm. period, while the king is this uh, pagan king. This this uh, he's not he's not a, a terribly good role model uh, guy no. who's sometimes called Xerxes, uh, but is uh, named in the book of Esther uh, Ahasuerus. There's the best guesses that we're talking about the same figure uh, historically, but at least that's the way the story goes. Ahasuerus will be the name of the king. I might slip into calling him Xerxes because I'm used to that. And that's what I'm used to too. It's, it's one of two names that starts with X and that's cool um, but um, so that's the time period that we're in and the setting the story opens with um, not all is well in the royal household of King Ahasuerus and his queen Vashti can you, can you sort of uh, give us the beginning of this fairy tale story so so the king is having this massive party as kings do uh huh and, and parties being generous. I mean, like, having, like, drunken frat party yes. or, you know, whatever else, you know. Uh, this, is, this is not, like, a mild-mannered Queen Elizabeth affair with high tea and cucumber sandwiches. No, this is going back to your college days, frat party kind of party. And um, the king has re- has commanded, he's not asked, he's commanded that his wife come out and basically show herself off all, to all of his drunk buddies. And she refuses to do so. Mm-hmm. And because she's a woman and she has a mind of her own and she doesn't have to listen to everything that her husband says. And and beyond that, too, like, she's well aware that the text, if you want to follow along, so we're not being uncharitable to King Ahasuerus here, the text says, on the seventh day of the party, the party has lasted, this orgy has lasted for a week now, the party's still mm-hmm. going on, and the text in the, the New Revised Standard says, the king was merry with wine. I mean, what, what a euphemism, right? So the, the, yeah. the drunk king in front of his drunk... Um, uh, subjects and, and fellow partygoers, the, the the big wigs and the so and so, he wants to show off, her, you know, her mm-hmm. beauty and wants the parade around to be ogled by the other official royal people as a way of sort of puffing himself up. Look at my trophy wife. Look how great I mm-hmm. am, mm-hmm. and look how great Persia is because I've got this kind of wife. And yeah, she doesn't want to. She refuses to just show up because someone snaps her finger. Um, and because Vashti doesn't want to be treated like a piece of meat uh, or objectified, and she says, no thank you, <laughs> she declines to come. The the big wigs and the so-and-sos are outraged, not just because they feel like King Xerxes have been slighted, but if you follow along in the text, this I mean, this is hilarious that they're this, they're, they're this honest about it. In, mm-hmm. in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, um, one, of, uh, one of the king's advisors, a guy named Memucan, so there's the list of like, uh, another name for the list of don't name your baby, <laughs> Memucan, uh, uh, forbidden baby names, Memucan, says, um, don't let word get out, you have to punish her, because if this deed, uh, if, if news gets out that she's done this, uh, all the women in the in the kingdom are going to say they don't yes. have to show up when their husbands <laughs> want to show them off as trophy wives. And so the king decides it's a good idea. He has, there have to be consequences. He has to punish Queen Vashti. She has to be deposed. 
she can't be the king anymore, and nobody's ever supposed to mention her name again. Oops, sorry, here's an act <laughs> of rebellion against King Xerxes. We're spending the first seven minutes of our talk talking just about Vashti, 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 Vashti. Uh, but her name is stricken from every pile and never allowed to come back, mm-hmm. and the king is now going to have a beauty pageant in order to get a new queen. Yes. Uh, and that's sort of where... The, the girl named Esther enters onto the scene. Mm-hmm. But again, like let's let's set the tone here. Sometimes we forget that the, the Bible is just as honest and real about human rottenness as real life is. And so instead of pretending that this is um, full of pomp and circumstance and that King Xerxes is a good, noble, fine leader, he's a guy who got drunk having a, a, a drunken party, wanted to treat his, meat, his wife as a piece of meat, and then mm-hmm. when he decides he doesn't like that she has a mind of her own, on top of that, he says, the way we're going to get the next queen is not, I'm going to fall in love with someone like in a fairy tale or something. There's not a fairy godmother to be seen anywhere in this story either. It's, we're going to have a beauty pageant. And I'm going to bring in a harem of women. Right. And from them, I'm going to beauty them all up. I'm going to make them all nice and fancy and everything. And from them, I'm going to put the most gorgeous, beautiful piece of meat, basically, right, right, right. out of this group. So, like, I mean, like, this is not the King Xerxes says, I, I, I wasn't my true soulmate with Vashti. I need to find someone who really clicks, you know. I'm not looking for the glass slipper girl or right. anything like that. Right, right, right. And, and like, I feel I need to say this because I have heard... Uh, poor Bible studies, but I've heard Bible studies or teachings or things like this that sort of treat the story of Esther like it's got this fairy tale thing about how lovely Esther is and she gets dressed on the ball. It's like someone trying to like make this be like, look, the Bible has Disney princess stories too. And no, that's not what this is. And there's nothing good that comes off about King Xerxes in the whole story. No. I mean, yes, Esther has some beauty of of her own to begin with, obviously, for her to be chosen to be part of this group of women. But the king has all these women dolled up. He they they you know, traipse them in front of him. Yeah. Just you know, kind of like a Miss America thing. Right, right, right. Um, that's not for scholarship. <laughs> right, right. And they don't even get to asking questions whose answers are ruled peace. They don't, not, <laughs> I don't even care what you think. They're yeah. Just, you know, I'm just looking at your body. I'm looking you up right, and down right. and saying no, no, no. Oh, I like her. Yeah. And so. At the end of this beauty contest, uh, Esther wins. She's mm-hmm. the, the most lovely. Uh, and here's the secret that we and the readers of the story know, but that the king doesn't know, and no, very few other people know. She's Judean. Mm-hmm. She's Jewish. Yes. Um, and so this becomes, like, this is one of those points that almost becomes like a Shakespearean sort of turn to the, the plot. It's going to be important. And at this point, uh, Esther becomes queen. Uh, and even though she has important things to say later on, she's not made queen because she's got important things to say or because mm-hmm. she has a mind of her own, but because she's lovely. And uh, she becomes queen. She had been what sort of brought up by her older relative, Mordecai, uh, who, again, also Jewish, and sort of he becomes the voice of her people for her mm-hmm. and, and sort of this ongoing counselor and sort of confidant for him. Side note about Mordecai's name. This is one of the marks of the, the people's history. Um, when, when the people get carried into to exile in Babylon, the Babylonians had this rotten habit of giving people names after their pagan gods. So even though lots of traditional Jewish names, Hebrew names, have the name for Yahweh, God in them, or El in them, like mm-hmm. Daniel, that kind of thing, um, the, the Babylonians had a way of saying, that's not your name, we're giving you a new name. And Mordecai comes from the, the Babylonian name Marduk for their chief god. And so like he bears the scars in his name of like, we've been taken over by one empire after another. Mm-hmm. Now the empire's changed, the policies and the tactics haven't changed, but here's Mordecai, um, who, who becomes the voice of 
Esther's people and the voice of the people of Israel and the God of Israel, even though this is the one story in the entire Old Testament where the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, isn't spoken at all anywhere. It doesn't appear in the yeah. text at all. Um, but he becomes that sort of voice, that, that voice of conscience for, for Esther, who keeps her grounded in, with, her, with her people and with their ways. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so Esther has become the queen, and then we come across another guy, again, don't name your kid after him, Haman, mm-hmm. um, who is like the right-hand advisor to the king. Right. And um, I don't want to miss the details here, so help me out, Steve. What what exactly was his plot again? Sure. Well, like there, there's sort of two, <coughs> two steps to this. One is Mordecai discovers a plot that was going to happen against King uh, Hazuerus, King Xerxes, yeah. and Mordecai foils it, and... Um, the bad guys are put away, and it was recorded in the official record books in the king, and sort of forgotten. Sort of this, oh, hooray, Mordecai, never, but he forgets yeah. him. Meanwhile, I mean, this, this story plays out a little bit like a comic book as well. Meanwhile, this mean, mustache-twirling, black-hat-wearing villain named Haman, and he really is, like, one of the the, the most, like, starkly black-and-white bad guys of the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haman, um, who is envious and jealous of all this, decides he wants to uh, plot and destroy not just Mordecai, because he's envious envious that Mordecai's had the success, but to wipe out all of Mordecai's people, all mm-hmm. the Jewish people as well. And he begins to construct this plot by which a whole group of people can be marginalized and treated like they don't matter. And he begins to get the the sort of political or governmental um, uh, rules and regulations in order that will allow him to plot to wipe them all out. That, like in this sort of secret behind the scenes way, the king will sort of uh, uh, think it's all all right. Uh, his 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 uh, speech, his spiel to King Ahasuerus, this is in the chapter three, goes something like this: There is a certain people scattered in among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws. It's not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay. 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business so that they may put it into the king's treasure. So, like, his plan is to say because they have their own culture, their own their own language, their own sort of subgroup, mm-hmm. and they don't declare their supreme allegiance to the empire and to the king, which is right. I mean, tr- classically, Judaism is clear on this. Your allegiance goes to God. You live by God, mm-hmm. rules God's commandments. Even in exile, even when they were ruled by foreign powers, they kept those distinctives. They kept the festivals. They kept the kosher. They kept the rules. They um, they continued practicing Sabbath, even when they didn't have their own fields to, to allow to lie fallow, but they kept mm-hmm. Sabbath. All these things sort of kept this sort of minority presence alive wherever they were, and Haman sees it as subversive, as dangerous, or at least that's his marketing mm-hmm. to, to Xerxes. And Xerxes buys it. He's like, yeah, no, everybody has to give their allegiance to me, and we can only have one set of laws, and it's dangerous if we have other people with other higher allegiances than to me. And so he agrees, without anybody knowing that Queen Esther is one of these uh, members mm-hmm. of the Jewish people. Uh, when word gets out that this is going to happen, of course, the king doesn't realize he's just signed the death warrant for his own wife, you know, the beauty pageant winner. Um, uh... Mordecai, Esther's uh, friend uh, and, and relative, calls her and says, "We got to talk about this. You, yeah. You're the only one who could be our, our help right now, right? So, help us out. How's that conversation go?" So, yeah, I mean, Esther is the only one who has any type of position or power to to reach the king and tell him this is a bad idea. Right. This is genocide that Haman's talking about. Right, right, right. Really, I mean, this is this is this is a genocide. He wants to get rid of all the Jewish people. And, so, and the danger is because they're other. I mean, that, that's, his, yes. that's his sales pitch. It's we can't tolerate anybody who's different. That, that makes them a threat to us. We have to get rid of them because they're insistent on pertaining, on holding on to their distinctiveness. 
I don't use this word lightly, and maybe it's because we're talking about the Jewish people yet again. He wants to pull a holocaust yeah, well, on the people. This, this is, in a lot of ways, sort of the biblical roots of some of that anti-Semitism, right? Yes. You could say in in the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh wants to wipe out the firstborn sons, it's not treated as a, as a uh, want to wipe out the whole nation. He doesn't want there to be a threat to, to end the slave, but he wants to keep the slaves. He wants the slaves alive yeah. and as slaves. But here is, we need to wipe out these people as people because mm-hmm. they're dangerous um, we're ruling over them already, but even that's not enough. We have to make they're sure they're gone, gone. altogether. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Mordecai, he pulls Esther aside and he talks to her and he says, you need to do something about this. Right. You know, you have power. You are the queen. I mean, you're, you're married to the king. You're the only one that has power. And he doesn't realize yet that you are Jewish. Right. And, and so you have that kind of on your side, too. Right. And, and that, that's, that's maybe the, the, the reason why the leverage sort of comes to focus <clears throat> on, on Esther, is that um, uh, the king doesn't know, and yet her only power, her only mm-hmm. leverage, you could say, is that she's, she doesn't have any political power. This isn't, uh, uh, she's not the prime minister. They, 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 don't, they don't have any uh, political power given to the queen, or she can you know, mm-hmm. repeal this act. The only, the only ability she has is to persuade the king please don't kill the Jewish people. That includes me. And if you, I mean, like she, even at that is still sort of appealing to his self-interest of don't kill the Jewish people Mm because you like me, don't you? And I'm one of them. Um, But she also realizes that if she keeps quiet, she could theoretically save her own life by not risking anything and just keeping it secret and hoping nobody ever finds out that she's Jewish as mm-hmm. well. So, like, that's a live option on the table. It's not a courageous option, but that it would have been a choice for her to just keep her head down, not say anything, and let her people get wiped out. Um, and this becomes the sort of the, the, the heart of what Mordecai says to her, right? Yeah. He said, you know, maybe you were appointed for such a time as this, for you to be able to go to the king and say to him, this is a bad idea. This is not something you want to do. You're going to be killing my people. You right. don't realize this, but these are my people. Right. And so Mordecai and Esther agree to call the, the entire Jewish people to a fast for mm-hmm. three days and three nights to, to pray about this. Uh, and I think probably for her to, to get up the courage to be actually go in and to see the king. Because here, here's the thing. You don't just go and see the king. Right, and that's part of what makes this the, the such a risky predicament for Esther. Yes. Mordecai is asking her, go in uninvited to go visit the king. And Esther points out back to him, look, if the king hasn't invited me, remember all the trouble that Vashti got into for not going when she was summoned, and then yes. there's the same kind of trouble. Uh, there's one law, and that she even says in verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king mm-hmm. in the inner court without being called, there's but one law, all alike are to be put to death. death. I mean, like, Vashti just got exiled and sort of deposed. And, because and she refused to show up. Because she refused to show up. And now if you go into <coughs> the king's presence without the invitation mm-hmm. of the king, death is what's potentially on the line. So this is the, the danger for for. Esther, if she goes in front of the king, she's breaking the law. Yeah. And if she breaks the law, the penalty for breaking that law is death uh, for her for sure. Uh, Whereas if she keeps quiet and doesn't speak up for her people, she's taken the odds that maybe nobody will ever find out she's Jewish and she could keep her own life at the expense of all of her people. Mm -hmm. So Mordecai, yeah, in those famous words, if people know one verse from the book of Esther, they know for you, who knows but that you may have come to such a time of prominence for such a time as this. Mm -hmm. And then Mordecai adds this other verse as well, uh, this other, this other saying, he says, you know, if, um, if, if you don't, uh, help will come from another quarter. Yeah. But, um, 
Uh, if you if but this might be the time that you've been you've been raised up for. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an important piece. Even even at that point, Mordecai doesn't say the name of God. He doesn't say God. But like it's sort of like this understood like God delivered us in the past. That like who's the one raising somebody up? If, mm-hmm. if you won't do it, Esther. God, God won't be thwarted in the end, but uh, this is maybe the moment you've been brought to prominence. For. Yeah, Mordecai's remembering the the great story of the Passover. You know, without saying it, that, sure. I mean, that's kind of I, I imagine that's where his mind goes, is because mm-hmm. that's the story that the Jews have held on to from that moment, mm-hmm. even to today. You know, God will bring somebody mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. rescue us, to bring us out of slavery. In Egypt or in Babylon or in Persia, wherever they're at, God will rescue us because we are God's people. And so he's saying, if you don't do this, Esther, then somebody else will. Yeah. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that he treats Esther's choice as though the stakes are low. Like, well, who cares if it's not you, Mio? Like, But you have the most power, yeah, Esther. Yeah, yeah. You have the most capability at this yeah. point in this time because of where you were placed, because you were chosen from that beauty pageant to be the queen at this time. Right then maybe the king might actually listen to you because he's not going to listen to one of us. And just because there's this promise of help will be raised from someone else doesn't mean that horrible things might not happen if Esther Exactly. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. uh, eventually God raises up a deliverer to set the slaves free from Egypt. But after 400 years of slavery and how many people whose blood is shed by Mm -hmm. Egyptian taskmasters. So, you know, there's this sense of... It's it's like that famous line that has been attributed to lots of people. Uh, I've often heard it attributed to Dr. King, but I think he's quoting someone before him that... the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There's some yeah. of that same le- sense here of like, mm. eventually God will set things right. But that doesn't mean you can slough off and shrug it off and say someone else will come along. Yeah. There, this, this may mean the death of a lot of people if you don't have the courage uh, to break the law and to mm-hmm. go in. Uh, but again, to, to go in knowing that if there are consequences, you will bear them, Esther. I mean, like that's yeah. the other piece here that, that Mordecai says to her, you, we need you to speak up on behalf of all your people. And Esther says, all right, but so we're clear. I'm breaking the law if I go in to see the king and I could die from this. Um, and, and at the at the very least, run the risk of being terribly unpopular by all the um, the so and sos and the powerful people. Mm, right? Yeah. They got all upset when a woman had an independent thought in chapter one, <laughs> and they said, "Don't let word get out of this, or else all the mm-hmm. uh, wives and all the women across the the empire will start thinking they're actual people as well." Um, Vashti, Vashti, Vashti. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah. again, Vashti, you know, she was summoned, she refused to come. Now right. we have a woman. Who's basically saying, okay, I will go without being summoned. Right, right, right. You know, and the only thing that's going to save her is if the king extends his scepter to her and says, you know what, no. She came, she wasn't summoned, but she came. But she's my wife, and I'm going to let her. Right, right, right. Have her peace. So the king is allowed to. He I mean, he, he's allowed to be merciful and extend. But the, Esther knows that there is the possibility, especially given the track record at the beginning of the story. This king is not one. No. Is, is not in favor of hearing what women have to say on their own terms. No, most of the Persian and Babylonian kings are not. Right. Very right, merciful right, right. people, if you look throughout history. Right. So after after this sort of period of uh, fasting and, mm-hmm. and sort of getting her, her, her game face on, she you know she sort of works up the nerve, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. She goes into the king, uh, and she says to him uh, that she's got this great idea. She wants to have a feast. Will, will he come to a special banquet if she throws a party? Um, in the meantime, uh, Haman is plotting again and is building this big old giant gallows that he's going to hang Mordecai mm-hmm. on because he's just sort of savoring the idea, I'm going to mm-hmm. kill all the Jewish people, and I'm going to watch as I kill Mordecai because I hate him so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the meantime, uh, what Esther discovers that old historical record of what Mordecai had done to save the people before, right? Yeah. And so um, th- this is this is the beautiful Shakespearean sort of uh, uh, 
tension of the scene at this big old party uh, that the king has granted uh, to have. Haman's invited. I mean, like, and Esther is savvy. She's smart. I mean, like, she 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 uses the opportunity she has, and she doesn't do this in a way that. Um, that puts the king on. I mean, she knows the mm-hmm. only way she can appeal to the king is basically to his own selfishness. Yeah. And the only way she can get Haman sort of in the picture, too, is, again, if she appeals to his ego as well. So mm-hmm. Haman's invited to this big party, and um, uh, the, the question gets put, Haman, what would you do if you wanted to honor somebody who had done a really good service for the king and was really, really important, and you wanted to do spe- something special honor mm-hmm. him? And Haman goes, well, he must be talking about me, me because I'm such an important guy. And so he says, well, you should throw a big party and you know, march him to the streets as a hero, right? Have a big parade in his name, mm-hmm. that's what you should do if you, the king wants to honor somebody. He's, you know, just sort of having his own wish fulfillment fantasy, yeah. thinking, and the king's going to give this to me, and I'm so excited, <laughs> and I'm so important. And after he says this, the king goes, well, that's a great idea. We should do all the things you said, Haman, for Mordecai, because it turns out he was the hero. <laughs> he had foiled this plot earlier in the mm-hmm. book, and Haman is even madder. Um, and then at this point, Esther reveals and says, King... Uh, if, if you continue with Haman's plan, it's going to mean wiping out all my people and me as well because I'm one of these Jewish mm-hmm. people. I'm, I'm from the, the people of, of uh, Judea as well. Uh, and at this point, then, Haman's finally exposed as the black hat, mustache twirling villain that he is. Uh, and in one final bit of delightful, dramatic irony that Shakespeare would say for himself, <laughs> he gets hung in his own gallows, right? Yes. So after all that, he was plotting to kill Mordecai. On a, and again, his, 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 his beef with Mordecai is he's envious, he's jealous, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, Mordecai had saved the king's life, and Haman right, didn't. Right, right, right. And like, like to me, like this is another one of those moments where, the, even though the name of God or, or none of the commandments of the Old Testament are mentioned in particular in this story, like the the undercurrent of like. Uh, the commandment against being jealous or uh, against mm-hmm. coveting what other people have is sort of like in the backdrop of like God's people were meant to live a different kind of way. Yep. And look what happens when we give ourselves into this kind of jealousy or, or, or envy of what other, uh, good things happen to other people. Mm-hmm. And Haman sort of exemplifies, yeah, this is what happens. Uh, you end up getting consumed by bitterness and often you end up getting hoisted by your own petard. Uh, and so today in uh, modern Judaism, there's a festival celebrating mm-hmm. the whole event that happens happens here. Uh, Purim is the, the festival, the casting of lots is uh, detailed there at the end of the story. Um, and this becomes one of those lesser known uh, festivals within uh, Judaism. Even to this day, uh, there's traditional food, uh, Haman hats, uh, Hamantaschen, <laughs> which are basically like cookie representations of Haman who lost his head getting hanged on. I mean, it's, it's this delightful, dark oh, humor. But, but it's, you know, in a way, it might be dark and off-putting, but on the other hand, this is the sort of the, the resistance of God's people who are the ones who are in danger mm-hmm. of being wiped out entirely. And who celebrate that God saved them and vindicated them and that the ones who tried to do evil on them ended up getting consumed by their own evil in yeah. the end. Um, that, again, with, without without naming, without needing to name the name of God in this story, this is a story about the what, what classic theologians might call the providence of God, God working through human uh, beings and through uh, uh, ordinary circumstances or regular events without the parting of seas or wine into water, water into wine, mm-hmm. without miraculous events. And yet, like we talked about with Ruth, that to me is part of what makes this story so powerful, is that I have a harder time relating to, oh, I'm cross I'm at the edge of the sea, I'll just stick my hands out and voice of God will speak and I'll part the waters. Nope, I'm going to get wet. I'm going to go into the water, I'll get <laughs> yeah. wet. Um, and that it's only in rare occasions where the audible voice of God happens, where a plague of locusts is sent, mm-hmm. or uh, Joshua makes the sun stand still. And, and without, without denying, that's a part of how the story of the people of God goes, and Jesus walks on water and raises the dead. Um... 
there are stories that give us guidance and grounding for how to live as God's people on the days when there are no special effects, which is most of our days. Yeah. Um, and that in that regard, Esther is lifted up as a really, really powerful example of when you've been put in a position of privilege, what you do with the privilege that you've been given, mm-hmm. um, even knowing that you easily will make enemies for uh, speaking up for people who are being pushed aside or treated like they don't matter. And the idea that this is a, this is a woman that does this. Yeah. Um, yes, she's a, she's a woman in a in a, in a um, with privilege and, and power, but she's still a woman. I mean, if, if the Jewish people do not consider women to be of, of terribly great value, the Persians and the Babylonians do so even less. Right, right, right. And I, I think I think you can certainly make the case that this is not so much anti. Jewish law so much as it is more about like this is what empire does and the way it treats women and yes. that the, the fact of, of Esther being a woman is an important factor in the story you can't you can't write that off and say that's not important no that's a piece of what happens in this story and that's a piece of why the dynamics play out the way they do but and I love that you know we're looking at these stories Steve and when we're seeing and we're pulling out women and showing that it's not always the men that do the saving right right you right. know it's the women that do it too and and so. But yet, both men and women can learn from this. Right. And I think that's a really important piece of this, that, that the way the story of Esther plays <coughs> out, nobody in traditional uh, uh, Judaism, nobody in any form of Judaism that I know, treats this story as, this is just good advice for women. No. But this is an example of what cu- of courage looks like, and of discernment, and, I mean, there's a certain amount of savviness, too, about, okay, I, I want to accomplish a particular end mm-hmm. uh, to save my people, how do I go about doing that? And she doesn't launch an armed revolt or something like that, she doesn't try and raise up an army. We can have a conversation yeah. later on about Deborah, who does does go into battle uh, in another era in Israel's life, but um, she's smart, she's savvy, she doesn't have to kill anybody over this, Amen sort of gets what's mm-hmm. Coming to him here, but she doesn't have to bear the sword and go on a uh, on a rampage. Uh, she allows um, she allows evil to become its own undoing, which is so often what happens yeah. uh, if if we dare to have that kind of courage. But she also knows that that stepping out in courage means taking the risk that whatever the consequences are, she may bear. And she also is willing to be heroic in ways that everybody won't recognize mm-hmm. as heroic. And I think, truthfully, we need more examples of people who have that kind of courage. Yeah. Because, to be honest, I, I don't mean to, 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 to minimize the heroism um, of, uh, you know, the, the, the firefighter runs into a burning building or, uh, you know, saving mm-hmm. a basket full of puppies or something like that. Hooray, if you, if you do that. But, like, everybody's going to cheer if you're the person who runs into the burning building and you get to have, mm-hmm. the, you know, hooray, thanks for being a hero. Um everybody wants to be Spider-Man. I mean, there's a hooray, yay, the superheroes, everybody likes Superman, he saves the day, and everybody recognizes it. But um, the ability to be heroic, to speak up, and to absorb whatever the risks are, even knowing there are going to be people who see you as public enemy mm-hmm. number one, as dangerous, sub- subversive for what you were doing, that, that's, an important, that, that's an important piece of heroism. And in some ways, it's even harder to train ourselves to mm-hmm. do because it's easier when people are cheering for you and clapping for you. And it's harder when you're doing the heroic thing and people think you're being a villain while you're doing it. But the church is called to stand up for those on the margins. Right, right, right. And that's exactly what Esther does in this story. Yeah. She stands
stands up for those in the margins, the Jewish people. Yeah, and it, in this case, it happens to be her own people as well. Yeah. Although the point is made earlier, she could have, it would have been terrible if she would have, but she could have sort of disavowed that connection, saved her own skin, and uh, not put her life on the line. Or she could have even gone to the king and not even said that she was Jewish, too. Right, right, right. Yeah. And still kept up this facade that she was Persian, just like all the other women that were, you right. know. So she didn't have to ever admit, even when she did go in front of the king, right. that she was Jewish. Right, right, right. And and in that regard, she could have put her own interests to her herself first. Or she could have said, <coughs> I'm a good law-abiding person, and I know God always wants us to obey all the laws, and so I won't go and see the king because he hasn't summoned me. I'll wait mm-hmm. for him to summon me. And if in the meantime he kills all my people, well, I'm just abiding by the law. Yeah. No, that it, it, there's an important... There's an important urgency to it. Has to it has to be now if we want to save lives. There's a timeline here. We right. need to take care of this during this timeline. Right, right. So. There, there's a line I've heard attributed to um, my older brother in the faith, our older brother in the faith, Martin Luther, uh, that how often not now becomes never, um, and that we mm. have this way sometimes mm-hmm. of saying, "Well, just just wait a while, wait a while, mm-hmm. wait a while." Um, and it, curiously enough. Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, another person with the same first two names, in his uh, uh, famous letter to the Bur- uh, from the Birmingham jail, is writing to other ministers who have advised him in his movement, oh, please, just just wait a while, just wait a while, eventually things will get better. Mm-hmm. And he has to write back and, and say the same point, that, that uh, so often, wait or wait your turn, or you know, just not now, not yet, wait till it's convenient, or wait till we're all on board, or wait till everybody thinks it's a great idea, then we'll do it. That so often becomes never. Um... And that there's a point at which you have to speak up or act even when other people are upset about it. If God's ready to move, he's going to move. Yeah, yeah. And if you're in on that movement, that's great. But God's going to move anyways. Right, right. And so you either join the movement when he's moving. Right. Or you don't join it at all. Right. There, there's another line. I'm going to only get the gist of it here. But it sticks in my head from, um, it's again of, of Martin Luther's. And the gist is something like... Um, it's easy to be towing the party line on the parts where there's no controversy, but at the point at which that's where the battle is, that's mm-hmm. where you need to be sort of on the right side of things and be clear, and where it's difficult, when it's, when it's uncomfortable. And you have to imagine that all those powerful people who were angry at the beginning of the book of Esther when Vashti dared suggest she didn't have to go and parade herself uh, mm-hmm. from a bunch of drunk party guests uh, were threatened by the idea of Esther speaking up. And they would have said... She's ungrateful. Here she is. She's got all this wealth. She's got all the power of the kingdom. She's ungrateful that, uh, you know, she, and, and they could have easily said, uh, you know, she hasn't suffered. Why is she speaking up? You know, she, mm-hmm. she, you know, she's been given nothing but good things and luxury. Why is she making a big stick? She should just keep her head down and not get yeah. out of her place. Um, and my goodness, how many times hmm. in the thousands of years since Esther's story has that train of thought been used? Of, mm-hmm. You've got a good cushy position. Why are you speaking up for somebody else? Uh, and why? And and for that matter, you could imagine all the pro empire voices in Esther's day saying things like, "Well, she's subversive of the government, of the good government. She's she must not care. She must not be very mm. patriotic because she uh, is risking breaking the law and insulting." I mean, like there's mm, all mercy, sorts of Lord. Ways. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of ways in which mm. Esther's story uh, mm-hmm. sh- should make us uncomfortable um, because it is awfully easy to say, uh, I always have to, to do whatever the law says uh, because the law is always good. Uh, in this case, Esther knows there's the law, mm-hmm. and if I break it, uh, I risk the consequence of death by going to the king 
and I'm, it's an act of civil disobedience to go. Uh, and yet she realizes in the end if she doesn't, if she waits around until it's legal or she waits around for the king to invite mm-hmm. her, it could be too late. And it's worth her risking that loss of everything. Even if she doesn't lose her life, she knows she runs the risk of losing reputation, of being kicked out of her position of prominence, of never having any ability to have a public voice at yep. all again. Um, and... Uh, she does it anyway. That's what courage often looks like. Or it, it looks like that and we don't recognize it as courage mm-hmm. very often. We treat it as you're just being a troublemaker or you're being noisy mm-hmm. or you're, why are you raising all this ruckus? Ooh, Steve, you're preaching to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're preaching to Oh my goodness. May we have the courage of Esther to see that when we have power and privilege to use it, yeah. even if it goes against those good government laws. Right, right. Well, and like, this is a reminder, too. I've, I've heard this said lots of times before, so this is, isn't new to either of us here, but um, uh, Jim Crow was legal and the Holocaust was legal mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know, Bonhoeffer's resistance mm-hmm. was against the law mm-hmm. and the Civil Rights Movement was against the law. Selma was Come against on. the law. Come on, For that matter, I mean, like, uh, I'll, I'll borrow <coughs> uh, a dead white person. Henry David Thoreau has this whole bit about civil disobedience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, there there are those important voices uh, who have said sometimes it's worth being able to say, no, this is not acceptable, and who don't do it in violent ways or trying to destroy other things. But And, and notice, Esther doesn't like lead a riot and start no. smashing windows. She doesn't look to gather a, a mob of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of angry people to go. This is peaceful, people. peaceful protesting. And the heart of it is she recognizes she's taking, she absor- she's absorbing the risk into herself. That if yeah. there are going to be consequences, she's prepared to pay them, and that she knows she could mm-hmm. do it with her life, and if not with her actual breath, but with certainly her livelihood in her cushy position, and she does it anyway, that's a, a kind of heroism we need to be clear, that's heroic mm-hmm. and is not worthy of being villainized or making somebody out to be awful for being ungrateful or stepping out of place or mm-hmm. speaking up when they shouldn't speak up. Um, that's an important, important piece. And again, the New Testament, I think, even though Esther's name doesn't appear, latches on that model, that picture of heroism yep. again and again and again, when there's this image of part of our response to evil is we don't return violence for violence, we don't go uh, start lynch mobs because we're upset about things, but we'll be the presence of good in the midst, even if it means that we lay down our lives, even if it means it costs us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus certainly gets that uh, idea across. I mean, often he talks about the prophets as the ones who were got into trouble because they spoke out against the powers of the day, but Esther is in that same long line of people who spoke out when they needed to and uh, were willing to take the consequences for mm-hmm. it. And maybe somebody, Steve, needs to hear this that, that's listening to her podcast. Maybe not. Maybe this is just me need, feeling the need to say it. If you feel like you're being called to, to pull an Esther mm-hmm. and to stand up against something, you know, feel free to reach out to either one of us sure, or to reach sure. out to your pastor. And, and first off, make sure that it's truly God that's calling you to right. do this. Because it was clearly God, though he's not mentioned in this book at all, it's clearly God was calling Esther to do this. And I think that's an important piece of the story that gives us some grounding, too, is that for Esther, as much as she's the hero, she does have sounding boards in uh, her, her wise advisor, Mordecai, mm-hmm. and other people who will pray with her. And that it's not just, hey, I had this crazy idea, let me go do something <clears throat> reckless, but... All right, help me. They almost have to talk her into it. Yeah. Um, and she, she does it. But that's an important piece of the discernment. And if, if that sounding board confirms what you feel that you need to do, yeah. then, then do it. Because like I said before, if God's on the move somewhere, we can join him or we can get left behind. Yeah, yeah. And I'd rather join him. Yeah. And and that's how often, I mean, often that's how Jesus talks about what it is to be part of swept up mm-hmm. into the movement of the kingdom as well, you know. Uh, you know, let the, bed, the dead bear their own dead. The guy wants to come follow, and he, well, hold on, let me, let me wait until, and Jesus says, 
Come on, this is the moment. The train's leaving the station. Yep. Um, and yet Jesus is also clear that to follow him may well mean you lose your life. Mm-hmm. Whether your actual life, because they throw rocks at you or behead you or crucify you, uh, or at the Or your status. Yeah, your, your... Respectability, mm-hmm. all that kind of business. Yeah. And the, the, the people of God, <coughs> certainly from Sorry. Esther's time uh, on, so including the whole New Testament and church era as well, at our best, we've recognized that was there in the text calling mm-hmm. out to us. At our worst, we've softened or uh, muted or not talked about this or we don't read the story Mm -hmm. or um, Mm -hmm. it only becomes a story of providence in the sense of see everything works out so you never have to speak up and that's not what the point of the story is no uh, and it is possible to do great violence to this story by saying see it's a story about how everything works out so don't bother um that's not what esther gets remembered for um, and at no point is this about Esther's ego or needing to become the center of attention. If oh, anything, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. But she realizes she's been raised up for such a time as that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've gone way long talking about this conversation, <laughs> but so be it. You know, she's a, uh, Esther's, Esther's a, a role model who keeps poking me and challenging me mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. forcing me to see other touchstones in the line of church history uh, who have been in that kind of role as well. Um and maybe, at least for my sake, I need to, to have this conversation about Esther as well. Um, but we hope that you join us next time for other adventures in uh, leaders and faithful leaders in the Bible who also happen to have two X chromosomes. <laughs> See you guys.